Do you see like common traits in high-performing individuals? Yes. What do you see? Denial. Hello, everyone. I'm Morgan, co-founder of Primal Kitchen and host of the Primal Kitchen podcast. Today, a very special episode, I'm sitting down with my personal therapist, David Roadhouse, who's been in private practice for 50 years in Chicago. He's been practicing Buddhist meditation since 1975 and works with a clientele of high performers. A graduate of the University of Michigan and Princeton Theological Seminary, David is also an ordained Presbyterian minister. Additionally, he's competed in triathlons all over the world until the age of 86. He won three national and four world age group championships in the 60 to 74 age group range. I'm so excited for you guys to get to meet David um, and listen to this super unique, special conversation with me and my therapist. Before we get started, a brief reminder that any and all opinions and views shared by hosts and guests on this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the view of Primal Kitchen or its affiliates or parent company. Hello, David. How are you? Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Morgan. I just uh, clicked in. I have you right in front of me. I love it. And you are in Chicago. How's it going over there? We have some sunshine today, which has sort of been unusual these days. I love it. It's wonderful. I love Chicago when the sun shines. Yes, that's very true. It's not all that often, but it's good that you need some sun. Um, So those of you listening who don't know, David is someone I've had a very fortuitous relationship for a long time. He was actually my dad's psychotherapist when my dad was in, what, his 20s. And then he became my psychotherapist when I was in my 20s. Um, and now I'm 39. So gosh, we've had a relationship for like 15 years. Um, and David is, I would say from my perspective, but you tell me if I'm wrong, specializes in peak performance, both in his personal life and also in his professional life. So you have a plethora of, you called me once triple type A, but a plethora of, uh, (laughs) entrepreneurial high performing individuals in your practice. Is that fair? That's correct. Yes. I I love it. Um, so I want to focus on two areas, just peak performance as far as your own personal achievements and then peak performance, like mindset and what you see with your clients and just general advice in life. Um, and you are one who has, you've participated in what I just learned before we hopped on amateur age group triathlete. So this is, this is like one step away from professional triathlete. So you're racing not for money, but for fulfillment, which you, what you, um, shared with me, but for those folks listening, David has won three national age group championships and four world age group championships, all from the ages of 60 to 74. So at what age did you stop competing? Uh, 76. 76. I mean, this is amazing. How many folks were competing in your age group at 76? Uh, Well, at the Worlds, there were at least 75 guys from around the world. At least, but I mean, to me, I'm thinking like, man, there's like only 75 guys around the world who could compete at that level at 76. So it's, it's very cool. Can you tell the audience like what some of your key um, tactics were for just like training and nutrition that allowed you to compete in triathlon to the age of 76? Sure. Uh, Well, there are are really multiple resources. Uh, it, It begins with having a a wife, a spouse who uh, is uh, unconditionally supportive. Without that, the the divorce uh, field is very high. Uh, yeah, I would imagine. Uh, <laughs> Big time commitment. Big time commitment. Yes, and and subsequent exhaustion. So, in terms of training, uh, that's that's just major. Um, um, 
for somebody who's married, then I would say that sleep ranks up very high in there uh, because I'm continuing to work full time as a psychotherapist. And nutrition, I'd say, uh, would be third. Yeah. Um, and what specifically are you doing for sleep? Is there anything you do to help with sleep? Any supplements you take? And then, and then I want to talk about just specifically diet when you were training. Well, I, I slept in a hypoxic tent for 15 years. Stop it. Yes. No. What does that even mean? Tell the listeners what that means for those who well, don't know. It means that... Uh, I was sleeping in a tent um, that was probably 10 by 10 uh, by 10. Okay. Um, and a hypoxic tent means um, that you're breathing uh, 1% less oxygen and sleeping at about 12,000 feet above sea level. And the idea is that uh, you build more red blood cells to carry oxygen. Uh, as the body works to do that uh, during the night. And it, that's sort of the compartment you live in. I'm, like, I'm mind blown right now. Like, So do you have this set up in your bedroom or what's the deal? Yeah. 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 Okay, so you can go online and buy a hypoxic tent and get this yes. whole thing going. Is your wife sleeping in the hypoxic tent with you or she's in the bed? She has. Okay. Uh, we, we have uh, instituted uh, over the years, because I've been in the hypoxic tent, conjugal visits. Okay. I love it. And so, so are you still sleeping in the hypoxic tent or was this just no, a training no, thing? No, 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 now that you're done, you're done competing. So you moved out of the hypoxic tent. It's packed yes. up. You sold it on eBay and you're on to the next, you're, you're <laughs> right. back in the regular bed. Okay. Crazy. All right. What else were you doing for sleep? Uh, well, certain times I've taken a sleep aid. Okay. Uh, that would put me to sleep right away, which uh, is very helpful. Uh, because with exhaustion, it's often hard to drop off. Oh, interesting. So are you talking like Ambien here or what are we talking? Well, I did Ambien for a while and then, it, you know, Ambien sort of went sideways on uh, folks and yeah. it did for me a little bit too. Uh, so melatonin uh, proved to be very helpful. Uh, and the sleep aid uh, known as uh, Tamazepam. Okay which is a generic, that's something that is helpful. You know, if, if I had the, the time uh, in the mornings to naturally uh, get into my day, that would be fine. But uh, I was up at like five o'clock uh, to train. So I couldn't afford not to drop off right away. Yeah. At, at night. So what time were you going to bed? Like eight? 830. 830. Yeah. I love it. As soon as the kids uh, were in. Yeah, that's great. Okay. And so let's talk diet then. What were you doing for, how did your diet evolve over the years and what did you find worked the best? Well, I think uh, working with my um, uh, personal care physician, uh, you know, I, I learned sort of what my body was needing. And most pronounced was uh, uh, the need for iron. Mm -hmm. So I went on an iron supplement, uh, but didn't like it. Um, was constipating. Yeah, I was going to say pregnancy. I, I'm familiar with the iron constipation. It's brutal. Yeah, it's not 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 good actually. Yeah. Uh, so 
um, I moved right into uh, red meat. And uh, in order to avoid the, the fat, I went to fillets. So I was eating like a six to eight ounce fillet seven nights a week. Every night fillet. Every night. Yeah. I love it. Okay. What else? Anything with the fillet? Oh, so in other words, it's sort of like uh, eating like a dog, you know? Yeah, I mean? yeah. How, when did you start doing this? I'm super curious because there's like this big trend in nutrition right now called the carnivore diet. And there's a lot of folks who are just like eating like almost only meat there, or it's like meat, fruit, and honey. Those are the big basis of it. But how long, when did you start with the filet? 1986. Okay. So you were like, I don't know, a cool 35 years ahead of your time there. <laughs> like <laughs> no big deal. Just right. Starting the trend for the carnivore diet 35 <laughs> years before the carnivore diet was saying. So you sustained that. That was, you're like filet mignon every night for decades. Yes. And your blood work, did you see anything? You it Remind me, I'm like kind of remembering that maybe you were working with like someone who was also working with the Chicago Blackhawks. Is that correct? For medical? Uh, I had a, yes, a, an orthopedic surgeon. Okay, that's what I'm thinking of. But not a, okay, but not, okay, but not a, okay, but not a uh, neutral. Not a not a trainer. Okay. So your personal care physician who got you on to this whole thing was just a regular MD? Yes. Okay. I had been in practice many, many years. Okay. Uh, he's pa since passed away. Okay. Got it. So he gets you in this and your blood work where you're routinely testing your blood work, I'm assuming. Yes. And, uh, you know, my uh, iron rose and my red blood cell count rose. And so I just stayed with it. Yeah, I love it. it What's working. up with, the, why are the red blood cells, why is this so important? Well, that's how oxygen is delivered to the muscles. Okay. So, so for performance, this was like the most important thing for you to focus on. Definitely. Yes. Okay. So back to my earlier question, was it red meat only? Or are you having like a side of broccoli? What's going on uh, for yeah. breakfast? <laughs> so, uh, Red meat is probably at the heart of it, but then uh, there would be uh, vegetables. Uh, I, I, it's funny you mentioned broccoli. I ate a lot of broccoli. I still do. I love broccoli. Uh, and other um, vegetables and fruit, of course. Um, I'm a chocolate-holic. Me too, man, me too. I love chocolate. Yeah. And so I would... Virtually every every night, I would finish off a whole bar of Toblerone. Chocolate. Oh, jeez, yeah. <laughs> love Toblerone. Uh, our marketing director Anna and I did a hike through um, Torres del Paine, the national park in South America, and we like every night it was like our treat to eat like three pieces of Toblerone that we carried with us. So I have a I find yeah. Toblerone. And then, what was breakfast like for you? Were you training in a fasted state? Were you having breakfast before training? I, I would. Uh, train uh, and then eat usually oatmeal uh maybe with a, a side of eggs uh granola that i there was some variation in my breakfast much more so than dinner got it and were you eating lunch light light yeah because you're uh, working yes yeah. so midday during my work day i took a couple of hours and I would do a swim workout um, and then come back to the office and have yogurt or, or fresh fruit. Um, Just a little kind of snacky lunch. Right. Got it. That would turn out to be maybe three hours before dinner. 
Very cool. <laughs> and so now that you're not training anymore, what is the diet like? Are you still doing the red meat? Uh, yes, but only uh, probably twice a week. Okay. Uh, and my red blood cells count uh, is steady. It's not being taxed. Okay. It's, it's stabilized without the uh, uh, number of portions of red meat. So I'll have salmon, uh, chicken. Um, yeah. You're switching it up. Right. White fish. Yeah. I love it. Is Oda loving this variety back in the diet at night? Or were you cooking your own steak all these years? I would cook my own steak. Okay. You're so self-sufficient. I love it. Okay. Um, all right. So for those listening, your story, how you got into psychotherapy and kind of your modality of practice these days is very interesting. So can you give everyone just like a brief two, three minute overview of kind of how you ended up with the type of practice you had? And then we got to talk about obviously meditation and Buddhism. And I think this will be a nice segue into how that came into your practice. Sure. Um, yeah, I graduated uh, University of Michigan and then headed off to Princeton Theological Seminary. I wanted to become a, a minister. Uh, and so they have a three-year program from um, a master in divinity. So I was uh, there in Princeton for three years and uh, earned a master of divinity and then was ordained a Presbyterian minister and came to Chicago um, and uh, did a, uh, an internship and a residency uh, as a chaplain working in the outpatient psychiatry department, as well as working with terminally ill cancer patients, which I did for several years. Uh, and back then, uh, this was in 1969, 1970, uh, they didn't have the kind of cures that exist today, 50 years ago. So uh, if you were, so unlucky as to um, not be cured through surgery or radiation, then you had to go to chemotherapy. And chemotherapy then um, really was more extending one's life, mm -hmm. the most part, for most people, uh, and was really rough. And uh, so um, I, I counseled with uh, hundreds, literally hundreds of um, terminally ill patients. And uh, at the same time, Dr. Uh, Kubler-Ross's book on death and dying came out and she was at the University of Chicago at the same time. I did several seminars with her on death and dying. Um, and meanwhile, concurrently, I was, uh, this was all under supervision, uh, working in the, in the outpatient psychiatry department at Rush Medical Center, which then was known as Presbyterian St. Luke's. Okay. So um, after I finished my program there, I went to work in a mental health center uh, out in uh, Elk Grove Village here uh, on the outskirts of Chicago. And I uh, was there for less than a year. I um, became the clinical director. And then in 1972, I went into full-time private practice. Okay. And that's what I've been doing ever since. And so, but you kind of had some revelations along the way through your, I guess, assistance with transition people transitioning to death. Like you read this book on death and dying. Did your 
did your philosophy kind of switch on your approach to like religion and dealing with death? Definitely. Um, that was very trying because uh, just the experience of being with somebody who's uh, transitioning from life to death uh, is very trying. But I think for me, uh, what was so powerful was uh, realizing that uh, I did not have the uh, spiritual training that I felt would be more helpful to me. So that's when I got interested in uh, Buddhism and subsequently met a, uh, a Tibetan Buddhist meditation master, Chogyam Trungpa, and uh, beca became a student of his and uh, began meditating. And this was in 1975 that I began meditating daily. Wow. Very fascinating. I, is, did he write what book you told me early on? Like I remember in my, so this is 15 years ago. So bear with me folks, but you had me read some book I got and I can't remember the name of it now. And I remember it was the first time I had ever, I was ever exposed to like meditation at all. I remember the book was like, close your eyes and just like observe your thoughts. And I had never done that before. I can remember where I was. I was at the Hinsdale Golf Club sitting in a lawn chair, like at the pool with my 20 something year old friend. And I remember thinking, holy shit, like <laughs> I've never listened to my mind this is crazy. There's thoughts coming through here a million miles an hour. Like we're just these humans with this supercharged computer in our brain, having this otherworldly experience. And it was like, I mean, I distinctly remember like even which launcher I was in sitting in specifically at the pool. God, do you remember what book that would have been? You told me. Yes. Cutting through spiritual materialism. Okay. Yeah. That's his classic. Okay. Got it. And that was your sort of mentor. How did you meet him? He, um, after his book, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, was uh, released, uh, he came through Chicago and did a seminar at the University of Chicago. And I went uh, on a Friday night uh, and heard him and uh, decided I would do the seminar for the weekend. And then I got introduced to, to meditation that way. Very cool. I love it. Did you, what was your like biggest learning from all of the folks that you worked with when you were at Rush? Um, who were terminally ill. Yeah, yeah. Was there any big takeaways from that period of time? Aside yeah. from, I don't have the spiritual tools I need. Well, yeah, the, just the importance of being able to be present uh, in the midst of a highly emotional uh, circumstance with other family members being present. So what interested me so much about uh, Buddha Dharma, uh, Dharma is the teachings of the Buddha, and it means uh, the way things are, the truth of the way things are. So as I got uh, interested in, in Dharma, combined with sitting practice of meditation, uh, I found it to be enormously helpful. And became, you know, even more of a student uh, with uh, a really con very consistent uh, meditation practice uh, and found that uh, well, my world began to open up in terms of being able to be present. And 
that has been beneficial in so many different ways, both professionally and personally. Yeah. I would say Buddhism has definitely like had its moment or it's having its moment. I think meditation's been like we've had tools. There's been a lot of innovation in the field. You know, you've got like the calm app and there's different devices people are doing now. And there's much more awareness now about the benefits of this, right? I think yes. University of Wisconsin's done a lot of research that supported yes. the mental benefits of it. But back then, you had to be kind of like uh renegade. I don't know. Like, I mean, people weren't talking about meditation. I mean, I remember growing up, my dad put the suit on every day, financial advisor commuted to a very traditional job in finance downtown Chicago. But we had like a, he had a cushion and the whole Buddhist setup and he meditated every day growing up. And it was this juxtaposition, right? Of this human you wouldn't think who was starting his day sitting every morning. But how was that kind of how did you incorporate this in all your clients' practices or like how was that received? What was it like being kind of on the forefront of that movement? Well, it really uh, meant um, being responsive to people's curiosity or their interest. Uh, since uh, as a, a Buddhist, uh, there's no evangelizing that really goes on and being a, a Buddhist practitioner. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really more somebody discovering that it, it, through their curiosity or through a circumstance of things not going so well in their life and uh, uh, being introduced to the to sitting practice of meditation, uh, which uh, in, in this Tibetan Buddhist practice, uh, is um, you know it uh, has been practiced for two thousand six hundred years, and uh, it's known as shamatha vipassana practice. Shamatha means peaceful abiding, and vipassana means clear seeing, and th that's what is taught, and then that's what is practiced. Now it's sort of there's a lot that has been sort of co-opted conventionally uh, and it's proved to be beneficial to a lot of people, which is mindfulness, mindfulness awareness practice. So that actually is what shamatha uh, vipassana is, mindfulness awareness practice. And it's very, it's not, it's very unaided. It's sitting quieting your mind and the practice of continuing to just bring yourself back to the present, right? Like I remember thinking, labeling my thoughts, thinking, and then moving them away and going back to the present, labeling my thoughts, thinking, and then moving them away and going back to the present. I, I don't know. That was kind of what I remember from when I was starting out. Yeah. So the primary technique is uh, coming back to your breath. The interesting thing about uh, the breath is that it's always present. You know, you, you, when we're breathing, it, it's not, uh, 10 minutes ago. Right. Yeah. Or 10 seconds ago. And it's not 10 seconds ahead in the future. It's very much in the present. Yeah. So that has traditionally uh, been uh, Buddhist uh, meditation. Very cool. And so, okay, let's go back to your practice. So you transitioned to private practice. You've you know, you've gotten into Buddhism, you, I mean, there's articles written about this, so I don't feel like I'm sharing anything that isn't out there publicly, but you, 
you had a big client, Richard Melvin, who's a uh-huh. famous restaurateur entrepreneur in the Chicagoland area. He's behind Maggiano's and a bunch of other very well-known restaurants. And I remember reading an article where he was quoted saying, I think he implemented where he would pay for all of his staffs, like some portion of psychotherapy for all of them. And he felt like it was just tremendously important for his trajectory and the success of his business you know, personally and professionally. So how did you then, and then I know you have some other, I'm not going to go there, but some other, you know, clients who have done some, some very entrepreneurial clients, like how, describe your practice. Who are you working with? What do you specialize in? Like, (laughs) well, all of that is confidential, of course. Yeah. But I can speak generally. Generally, not people. We don't need to name names, just generally. Well, I can name one name and that would be you. Well, right. Yes, there's that. But when I met you, I was just a, hippie 25 year old who had gotten back from two into three years traveling around South America and was having really bad reverse culture shock. But yes. And uh, practicing uh, yoga. Yes, I was practicing yoga. yoga. That's very true. Yeah. And uh, certainly doing some surfing as well. And a lot of surfing. Yes, (laughs) there was that. (laughs) So uh, I think your yoga was probably very helpful in a way um, because it had a contemplative facet to it. Yeah. Surfing um, does too, in a sense, really. Yes. You're very present. Agree. There's like, a, it's a very present activity. I agree 100% with that. It's, uh, it would be uh, what we would call uh, meditation in action. Yeah. I'm much better at the meditation in action than the sitting meditation, <laughs> David, let me tell you. <laughs> well, the, the sitting practice of meditation uh, um, means that uh, you really have to uh, open up the space for yourself to just kind of uh, uh, not uh, be goal-oriented. Yeah. And to let things kind of come and go. Yeah. Relaxing your mind. So you've worked with a lot of like, you know, whatever, peak performers, a lot of people who are running businesses, entrepreneur types. What do you think the biggest issues you see are with clients and what's your approach? Curious how you would describe your approach. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I I really uh, work with uh, people's uh, state of mind. So when I meet initially with somebody, uh, I'm exploring uh, what their state of mind is. Um, And state of mind uh, would be, uh, are they curious? Are they in a lot of uh, psychological pain? Um, are they, um, do they have a certain level of awareness? Um, and sort of working with where they are in, in terms of their own, um, self experience in the world, whether it's, you know, in their business or in their personal life, in their marriage, friendships. So you assess that and then you kind of go from there. Yes. Uh huh. And what, what, like, you're not one. I've, I'm like kind of a therapist junkie. I've talked to a lot of people, but no one, like, I've talked to you, right? You've been my consistent, tried and true human for all of my experience of psychotherapy. David even married Adam and I. I like tricked Adam into couples therapy when we were engaged because I, we're both Catholic. And I was like, hey, since we're not getting married in the Catholic Church and we're not going to do that like thing they do in the Catholic Church before you're married, like, why don't you come meet David and I? And he can do some stuff with us before. And we had a, you know, a great time just 
getting to know each other on a in a like kind of a different setting before we were married. But um, what would you say? You're not one who like digs up the past. I wouldn't mm-hmm. say you were never like sit down and tell me about your relationship with your father. I mean, you probably didn't need to because you've known my dad for decades. But <laughs> you're you're very much like how would you describe your approach then as a, as a psychotherapist? Uh, sort of an organic evolution of what somebody needs to talk about. Mm-hmm. When somebody needs to talk about uh, their father, mother, or, or siblings, uh, I can detect that and yeah. help guide somebody into uh, that being an area that they need to, to explore. Yeah. Do you see like common traits in high performing individuals? Yes. What What do you see? Uh, probably uh, denial would be the number one. I was not expecting that. Tell me more. <laughs> uh, it's like a a super version of um, compartmentalization. So in order to keep accomplishing, um, they've got to tune out what's other areas of their life. And usually those areas then become troublesome. And that's what we need to work on. Interesting. So like they'll avoid, they'll like ignore their marriage yes. or something like that. Uh, yeah. And then the marriage becomes an issue and then you got to bring it back in. Right. So right. balance, like they're not balanced <laughs> a lot of times. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, uh, uh, something that um, is difficult to um, achieve. Nowadays, it's really talked about a, like a, a work, um, a work family balance, a work uh, personal life balance. Um, but, you know, that has a, you know, a, an image of walking a, a balanced beam. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's not exactly what I think uh, being balanced is. Uh, I think being balanced really has more to do with being open to what one is uh, truly experiencing, feeling inside, and becoming congruent with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, understanding it, uh, understanding yourself, um, understanding uh, limits understanding fears, understanding aspirations uh, as well, um, and, and and fundamentally uh, needs. Interesting. So would you say that some of your like maybe less achieving, we'll just say professionally achieving individuals are happier than some of your higher achieving individuals? Are you asking if... Uh, lesser achieving individuals are happier than I don't know I'm just curious if you're like high achievers are kind of in denial and avoiding other areas of their lives is there I don't know what's the learning there like if you're maybe I don't know I'm just curious I'm digging if there's some sort of I don't know something you you work with folks who aren't like trying to dominate their industry they're just chugging along like what do you see the difference of these two folks in terms of happiness well that group uh, has achieved a measure of well-being, uh, and they continue to excel. Um, the really overachievers um, 
will continue to stumble. Interesting. No, I'm so curious. Where am I on this spectrum, David? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that, that's an interesting thing to reflect on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we can certainly talk about it. Yeah. But again, your own uh, contemplation uh, would go hand in hand with meditation. So uh, my approach is really encouraging contemplation uh, along with a sitting practice of meditation. Fascinating. And the folks you work with that struggle the most, like what's some learnings out there for folks if they're just like, maybe they're not familiar with psychotherapy, they've never seen anyone. And if there was like one thing you could tell someone listening that would improve their life, like what would it be? Be kind. Be kind. Tell me more. Well, in order to be kind, you have to get outside yourself. And, uh, uh, be considerate of uh, other folks. And interestingly, that's not just some unselfish path because t- to be kind also is a self-nourishing attitude and approach in relating with others. So it's self-nourishing. It's not just some kind of uh, charitable act. Yeah. It's rewarding. Yeah. It's interesting because I feel like through you're not, someone might think, oh, we're like, we're big on Buddhism. It's a lot of just like, you know, passive kind of like observing, but that is like not my experience with you. Like I remember in my 20s, you know, I was working at an advertising agency and I was totally overperforming and underpaid, but I was, they gave me a chance. I was happy there was a great boss, um, that I had. I, I mean, I loved working there, but I remember you were like, you need to go in and ask for a raise. And I was like terrified. I'm like, you know, totally terrified. So I like typed up this one pager and I like marched in. I think I was probably shaking. And I was like, look, I'm handling. I X. Yeah. I was like, I'm handling X amount of revenue for the business. Like my account's grown 60%. I need a raise. And my boss was like, okay. And I'm like, really? Like, that's all I need to do is just ask. But you were very much not, you were very encouraging, like, well, get your ass in there and ask for a raise. Like, you you need to ask for what you're worth, right? So, but that kind of is not maybe what one would think you would. And you've taken that approach, I would say, with me. Across the board. Yeah, across the board. It's it's a bit of like a grab life by the horns, right? But yes. Yeah. So how does that compare to like uh, what someone might stereotypically think of as like a more passive kind of Buddhist, like let things happen, things come as they go type of approach to life? Yeah, well, I think somebody that's uh, doing that is really not uh, uh, practicing uh, the Dharma. Okay. How so? Well, I think they have a misunderstanding uh, that, uh, you know, being a Buddhist is somehow, um, you know, walking on eggshells, you know, tentative, that you can't be robust, let alone be joyful, energized. I mean, one of the reasons that I encourage you to go talk to your boss is that it was clearly an area that you were frightened to do. Yeah. uh, That means when you are that frightened that you need to overcome that. And there's no better way to overcome fear than to... uh, face it and, and enter into it. Yeah. Yeah. That's very good. Very good. <laughs> so when you're feeling that resistance in life, you should kind of lean in, huh? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
get in the game. You tell me that a lot. Get in the game. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how does one know if they're in the game or not? Uh, reflecting on it and reflecting on that question, you know, am I in the game? Yeah. Or am I sitting on the bench? Yeah. Or am, I, am, I, am I tentative? And uh, it's, the, the approach is really a carpe diem, you know, seize the day. Yeah. Do you feel like as a just, I don't know, culturally what's happening in the world or like young folks these days or like, how is fear playing out? Do you think like fear is something that you've kind of seen it's the same over time through your practice? Or do you feel like fear is presenting itself in different ways in like clients these days or in culture these days? Like how is fear? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, You know, a lot is being uh, written and spoken about uh, that uh, mental health is a problem. Yeah. uh, Worldwide, perhaps, but certainly in America. Uh, And I believe that, and I've seen that uh, occur in in, uh, people that I'm working with. Um, So uh, where does that come from? Well, it's sort of multifaceted, but one of the places I think it's coming from is the speed with which uh, information is coming into our lives. Uh, And it can be really uh, overpowering and and, uh, disorienting and uh, difficult to digest and process. And that has an unsettling kind of effect on on people's mental state and their behavior. Yeah. And I don't want to take the discussion into a a political dimension, uh, but we don't have a lot of great models out there for mental health. Yeah, that's for sure. Even in the celebrity world or in the sports world, there's not a lot of great models, really. I mean, there's certainly some, but yeah, that's that's an interesting point. And America is such a celebrity driven society are yes, we like more yes. so than you know other right. other communities right. around the world yeah i know god um interesting so tell me if someone were to ask you what's the meaning of life how would you answer that question <laughs> well uh meaning is flat it is um one dimensional experience is multidimensional so we say, what is the most important experience in life? We're just talking about uh, kindness, but something that uh, I do with my own family uh, every Thanksgiving uh, before we eat um, in front of the fireplace, I give a, a talk on the attitude of gratitude. So I would say that gratitude is... Uh, extremely important having an attitude of gratitude yeah and your family you have how many kids four yes four kids and how many grandkids these days nine nine it's great i love it um speaking of parenting and marriage what would you say the key to a happy marriage is that's a great question uh because it it relates to what we were just talking about um being kind Mm -hmm which includes being respectful uh, to one's partner, uh, listening, um, being willing to uh, put forth effort. It's funny, uh, 
my wife and I have been married for over 50 years now. And when we went out to dinner to celebrate our 50th wedding anniversary, uh, the uh, server came over at the end of the meal and said, you know, you guys, it's really, how, how have you stayed together for 50 years? And, and, and simultaneously, uh, both uh, my wife, Oda, and myself said, effort. Yeah. A willingness to put forth the effort uh, into uh, caring about how we treat each other, how we speak to each other, how we regard each other. Yeah. The sort of the courage to be an adult in a relationship yeah. like marriage. Do you think everyone should get married? No. No. No, unless they want to. I mean, I don't uh, hold up marriage as a sort of a, a measurement of uh, happiness. I don't think you have to be married to be happy. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but in, in, it helps. It can help. Mm -hmm. and, and for some people, it can be a disaster. Yeah. Do you feel like, how do you feel about divorce? Uh, You've been divorced. I am. I, I, I was divorced. I married my college girlfriend. Um, and four years later, we had a baby girl. And uh, we promptly separated. And uh, it was, we were better at, at just living without a kid. <laughs> yeah. Um, young children, as you know, just put a lot of stress on a marriage. Yeah. Do you think you like, I don't know. I feel like, okay, I'm a mom of young children. As anyone who listens to this podcast knows, I feel like I'm always talking about yeah. mom identity thing is strong, right? Like when you've got three kids under five, you're just like, I'm a mom. Everything else is kind of there, but I'm a mom. But right. I feel like, do you have any regrets about like divorce or getting married in the first place? Or do you feel like there's a point in which, how do you know when you call a marriage? Like, how do you know when you're like, this is, this is it. Like we, we've done what we can do here and we're better off apart. Like, I mean, how do you navigate those waters? Well, I'm a big proponent of living together and, and seeing if in fact, what the relationship is, is a marriage. Before you uh, get married. Before you get married and, and uh, getting married is more a celebration of something that already is. Yeah, I remember you telling me that. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's self-revealing whether or not you have a marriage. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I I don't have any regrets about uh, uh, getting married uh, because. Uh, my daughter, I would never want that to be any different mm -hmm. uh, than having her in my life and and in uh, the rest of the kids' lives. But divorce, it's like hard to know when to call it, I would say. A lot of people stick around for a long time. They're... Yeah. Well, you know, that's one of the complications is... Um, being able to have the confidence that divorce is what's right for you. Yeah. And probably then right for a partner as well. Yeah. Okay. Parenting. What's your, what's your best parenting tip for, for folks 
<laughs> listening. Uh, to not take your role as a parent too seriously. Tell me more about that. So being a parent uh, is really very, very challenging. There's no question about it. I feel that on an ongoing basis, and my kids are all... Um, parents themselves. Yes, they all are parents themselves. And um, I've learned the importance of staying in my lane in terms of relating to my kids and their kids. You know, I rather than I've got all the answers and you know, <laughs> telling yeah. them how to, how to run their lives and <laughs> their families and their marriages, uh, I stay in my lane. Yeah. That has to be especially hard for you, though, with your profession. No question about it. And your wife is a therapist, too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I bet you guys just leave and you're like, holy moly, do we need to <laughs> download after that visit? <laughs> Sometimes that's really the case. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so you think not taking, what do you think? I mean, it's really hard not to take parenting too seriously these days because it's just like you're inundated. Like even on social media for me, it's just like parenting tip after parenting tip after like, you know, are you gentle parenting like Janet Lansbury? You're going to cry it out. You're going to, I mean, there's just so many opinions. And I feel like I oftentimes feel like, as someone who tries to do everything right, which is a problem we can have a separate session on, but like, you know, you you do feel like you can just get in this perpetual cycle where you constantly feel like a failure because there's so many opinions about out there about how to do it the right way. Yeah, so if you're taking yourself very seriously, overly seriously. Trying to do it the right way. Yeah, then that will just sort of uh, become problematic. Yeah. So I, I think the idea is to simplify being a parent. Um, doing the right thing, um, helping a child uh, learn right from wrong, uh-huh. and uh, uh, the importance of discipline uh, uh, for uh, for a child's sake, mm-hmm. uh, because that will help them to learn how to self care. Yeah. Outside of your family, did you have any like your family and? the meditation teacher, did you have any like very important relationships? Like what were the most important relationships for you in, in your development, your whole life, I guess? Well, I would say early on uh, would be uh, my swim coach. Okay. As a kid. Um, and then uh, a college professor and then a uh, uh, a theologian, my relationship with a theologian. Um, oh, then as well as my uh, meditation master. Got it. Your meditation master. Yes. Okay. But then after that, did you have someone who, did you have like a mentor? Were you in therapy when you were doing your private practice? Yeah. When the wheels came off my marriage at the time, uh, I got into therapy. Okay. uh, Which proved to be enormously helpful. I was uh, so fortunate to be with a really a gifted therapist, uh, Robert Mungerson. And uh, interestingly, I got to him through my wife, who had been a client of his for okay. several years. She has a master's in uh, social work from the University of Chicago, and and he had gone to the University of Chicago, and there were a lot of students that saw him. She saw him, and uh, 
I liked the way that her mind worked. Um, and so I uh, went and saw him and, and uh, really hit it off with him. And uh, as, after a couple of years, and I went into uh, private practice, uh, he began referring clients to me. Which when he was full? I got started. Oh, that's so cool. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I mean, he believed in me. And uh, that really launched my my career. Yeah. It's so crazy how someone believing in you is so powerful when you're in at that age. I mean, I feel that way about Mark, right? Like at Primal Kitchen, like Mark really let me run with it. He really trusted and believed in me, but I had no business, you know, running Primal Kitchen. Like I, I really didn't. I mean, I did, but I really didn't. Like he gave me a lot of, I don't know, permission that wasn't necessarily proven on the back end. And, you know, we had such a I don't know. It was just such a cool opportunity for me. A lot of people aren't fortunate enough, I feel like, to have that. But if you can find that, I think that's such a tremendously powerful thing. It is. Uh, even uh, uh, in uh, relationships, to have a friend who believes in you, to have a spouse that, who believes in you, uh, who have uh, children that believe in you. Yeah. Uh, a parent, parents that believe in you, grandparents that believe in you. Yeah. It's, I it's love very, it. You're right, Morgan. It's very powerful. Yeah. Okay. I'm transitioning to something a little bit more morbid, but how, let's talk about death. This is like yeah. a, a big fear, I feel like, of, I mean, mine. I know I have a girlfriend. We're always talking about, like, oh, God, would this like massive fear of death? Like, how do you, how does death enter into your practice nowadays? And like, what are some, what are some thoughts for folks who are maybe fearsome of themselves dying or of loved ones passing away? Well, it's the loss of what's familiar uh, and therefore sort of what's comforting. So even the thought of that can be very painful. Um, and uh, of course, nobody really knows what happens. Right. People have faith as a result of what they feel uh, may happen after death. But it's really interesting, Morgan, you know, um, we talk about death as something that's different than life. Maybe we're dead right now. Ooh, tell me more. <laughs> In other words, as a, as a result of cause and effect, uh, I mean, we happen to be alive right now. That's what we call it. Yeah. But maybe... What if this is the afterlife? Yes. Interesting. Yeah. And have you seen, like, did you have any crazy experiences when people were transitioning, like any sort of spiritual oddities or anything that piqued your interest? No. No. And I was really on the lookout not to go there. Okay. And, and what do you think? Like, what's your take? Um, what's the Buddhist take on death? What happens after we die? Uh, well, uh, the traditional teaching in Buddhism is uh, a rebirth, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, we come back based on whatever uh, merit or goodness we could bring while we were alive, so to speak, to others. Like karma? Yes. A little bit like karma? And no. is this something you spend, are you like wigged out about death or you don't spend a lot of time thinking about it? 
You don't. No. Because you're here in the present. Yes. Yeah. So you're kind of like, I'm here for this ride. Whatever happens, happens. Well, not being reckless, of course. Yeah. Uh, I'm uh, not going to jump out of an airplane and think I'm not going to die. Um, but I'm not. I'm not terribly worried about it at all. Do you think that's unique for? How old are you now, David? Seventy-eight. Seventy-eight. Do you think that's unique mindset for someone of your age? Because I feel like it's really, you know, as you get older, that gets. Does it get scarier? Does it not? Well, I, I, I think it gets more present, particularly the uh, effects of, that aging has on the body uh, and the mind, and that that. <laughs> Fortunately, in in my marriage, that's a source of real humor. Um, because we both recognize it in our in our own lives and in observing each other. But we have a real sense of humor about that. Yeah. Uh, which is quite helpful. But uh, you know, there's the old saying, uh, how do you uh age gracefully? And uh, for uh previous generations, that's often been a goal, how to age gracefully. Um, and I think it really means being able to uh, make friends with the difficulties that come with aging, mm -hmm. whatever they might be. Yeah. Pain, wrinkles. Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. Changes in energy level, uh, you know, change in, in libido, um, all kinds of changes, yeah. cognitive changes mood changes, how you yeah. deal with certain emotions. Um, you and Oda, when you, you mentioned earlier, when the wheels were coming off in your marriage, were you referring to your first marriage or were you referring to you and Oda? Oh, no. <laughs> My first marriage. Okay, got it. Have you and Oda had, do you think every marriage goes through a point in which it's kind of make or break or no? Yeah, it's just a matter of degree okay. of how intense that is. Yeah. Uh, Have you guys had that? Uh, that's a good question. No. Yeah, I was going to say, if you have to think about it, I'm thinking it's a no, David. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, we've, we're all in. Yeah. And I wouldn't have it any other way, and, and Oda wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah. And sex. Let's talk about sex. Where do you think sex ranks in the importance scale of just life happiness, marital happiness? I, I think it's very important. I and think are you so saying that just because you're a guy or are you saying that because you think that for everyone? <laughs> a man. Uh, uh, no, I, I think it's true for, for males and females. Um, and it, mainly because um, it's something that we're capable of. We're capable of feeling sexual pleasure. And that's not something to be underestimated in how it affects an overall feeling about oneself and about life. I mean, uh, Odin and I continue to be sexually active at, at this stage in our lives. And we'll continue to do that for as long as we can. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. I'm like a third. I turned 39 last week and I'm like, man, it's like crazy. This whole aging thing. I don't know if it's just Southern California or I don't know what it is, but I feel like uh, I had a moment with one of my girlfriends last week where we were like, man, we are like not the like hot young 20 something girls who are patrolling this trade show anymore. We used to like go to Expo West and we're like, we're here to party, you know, like, and 40, you're probably like, come on, Morgan, you're not even 40. You just turned 39. Give me a break. But there is definitely just like some background, I don't know, just moving into the next phase of sexuality and how you view yourself and aging that is interesting to come to terms with when you're, and I'm not like some, I, my identity, as you know, was never really wrapped up in being like the hot girl. That was never my thing. <laughs> um, but it's still, is just it's it hard matters. it matters it matters and it's it is hard it's like i think there it's hard for women middle-aged women who you know maybe got a lot of attention for looks and sexuality and youth especially in our culture and then how our culture values an older population like do you see that in your practice definitely no question about it and we come back to uh you know, uh, the historical Buddha, uh, after he became enlightened, uh, he, in his first teaching, uh, he taught what came to be known as the Four Noble Truths. Or as my meditation teacher uh, taught, the Four Savage Truths. Okay. And the first noble truth is the truth of suffering, that every human being experiences suffering in one degree or another, or in different kinds of suffering. It could be the suffering of anxiety, the suffering of fear, uh, you know, the suffering of uh, unhappiness, uh, the, the suffering of overattachment. So you know, it's pretty natural to come up against painful emotions. Uh, that it, I believe, are inherent in being a human being. And you can, you know, as you're sharing, uh, it's come up for you as you turn 39. So, you know, good Lord, what's happening here? <laughs> How did I get to be 39? I'm sure you think of yourself as 29. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, of course. And there's some basis for that. I mean, I don't think that's delusional for you. Yeah, meaning... I still act 29. <laughs> uh, you've taken good care of yourself and you continue. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, you've done a really, and continue to do a, a splendid job with that. Just ask your husband. Well, thank you, David. That's so nice. Yes. Yeah, it is. It's just, it's just an interesting, it's an interesting thing, this aging thing. I feel like I, I had this realization like, I think you're like, yeah, yeah, friends, like my female friends who are just like, you know, I have one particular best friend out here in California, Natalia, and she's just like, mm -hmm. just a badass love. You know, she's just going to be like adventuring and really like grabbing life by the horns when she's like, you know, 80, 90. Right. And I feel like it, I don't know. I just feel lucky to have some females in my life like that, where I know aging with them will be a more of an adventure than a like, pain if you will uh-huh uh-huh yeah but i think the female friendship becomes almost like more important as 
you age. I don't know how to well, describe I, I think, it. I think females are better uh, at relationships than males. At friendships or at all relationships? I'd say all relationships. Even marriage? Yes. And why is that? Uh, I think it's a part of uh, uh, the way you're hardwired as a female. And you need to be able to uh, connect. Mm-hmm. Males, they don't have to connect. Like a little bit more of a lone wolf thing going on or what? Mm-hmm. What do males need then? Tenderness. Really? Interesting. I thought you were going to say like dominance or like some, <laughs> you know, I don't know, some very male, a lot of males power that, to like conqueror or something. Well, there are a lot of males that think in those terms. Yeah. But what they really need is tenderness. Yes. God, we really don't give the males in tenderness today in this culture. I mean, maybe it's getting better. I feel like there's a little bit more like the parenting styles now versus like my grandpa, right? Like it's definitely a bit more... um you know, acceptance of emotion and men are allowed to express other emotions besides just anger. And, you know, that's okay. No one's going to like hit their kid for crying. I mean, I'm sure some people are, but in the popular psychology thing today, it's not like toughen up when you're two years old, but, but yeah, that is a culturally, we really don't support men in that way. What do you think is happening with the male, the young male population these days? Well, it's disturbing. Uh, actually, um, uh, primarily uh, because of uh, uh, pornographic videos. And uh, kids discover those very quickly. And they, you know, think that that's what sex is all about. Yeah. Um, And they're addicting and. Yes. Yeah. I'm going to give my boys like romance novels when they're like of the pubescent age i feel like learning about sex from reading a romance novel is so much better than pornography like there's relationship building there's courting there's romance there's such an insight into like the female psyche you know my obsession with romance novels i think everyone else listening does as well but i just like always think about that i think about like if this were men's introduction to sex with a woman versus like a pornographic video how different my 20s would have been. <laughs> or, uh, uh-huh. you know, I don't know. I think that it is troublesome. It is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that goes hand in hand with uh, our uh, uh, technology that has uh, progressed. Um, you know, I grew up uh, in uh, an age where there were not computers, of course. Yeah. Um, and there weren't swim goggles either. <laughs> yeah. Or cell phones. Or cell yeah. phones. Yeah. And so I think it that technology, uh, while it's beneficial in numerous areas, particularly uh, in the medical sciences, um, is really uh, is threatening uh, to humans. Mm-hmm. Maybe I sound a bit like a a sci-fi freak in that way, but I really see that happening. Yeah. Well, and it's timely. Really, We've got like Chat GPT and AI taking over, and yeah, yes. it's 
interesting to see this experiment we're living in real time. Right. And and how how you parent in the context of all that happening. Yeah. And 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 what you do in your marriage as well. Yeah. And in friendships. Many tips. Yeah, I, I think that uh having a a friend who's a confidant is uh extremely helpful in life. Whoever that might be. Find someone. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I'm gonna give you a few rapid fire questions because we're we're about running out of time. So I want to wrap it up. But do you are there any books or people that are inspiring you these days? I find myself uh, going back to Dharma study uh, uh, again and again and again for inspiration. Okay. Returning to the classics. Are you well, doing any more silent retreats? You did. You led a silent retreat a, a couple years ago. To uh-huh. Where'd you go? Bhutan? Bhutan, am I saying that right? Yeah, uh-huh. in Bhutan. Um, and I was there uh, on retreat. Um, in nineteen eight and twenty eighteen and twenty nineteen as well, and teaching, I was teaching in Bhutan, cool, in a, a monastery where one of my teachers used to teach, Dilgo uh, Kense Rinpoche. Cool. Yeah, it was it was wonderful. Are you going to go back? Yes, I want to go back. I want to go back to Bhutan. It's really a, a magical kingdom. A country where they measure the gross domestic happiness instead of yeah. the GDP. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Um, okay. What is a weird like health thing you're doing these days that most people aren't doing? So that that sleeping situation you have going like really takes the cake for you. Is there anything, any other supplements you swear by these days or any anything you're doing that hormones who knows what anything you're doing that's really like you think powerful that is unique um i walk three miles a day um rain or snow okay uh and uh that after training for 30 plus years to race i've found it to be so uh life-giving it's wonderful to be in nature yeah every day i won't let a day go by without being outside and and walking are you still getting up at like five in the morning or are you sleeping in these days (laughs) i wake up at five anyway you know if if i go to bed late i wake up at five if i go to bed early i wake up at five you sound like my nine month old (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) I, I I probably am very much like you. <laughs> I love it. Um, okay, my last question. I ask everybody this, but what is something most people don't know about you? Uh, probably what a worst I am. What do you mean? That I'm probably much more of a scary cat than meets the eye. Like you're afraid of heights. You're no. afraid of driving. You're uh, shyness. Shyness. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, let's say that I'm I'm much more shy than meets the eye. Okay. So you're like a secret introvert or some sort. Yeah, there's an aspect of myself who's very introverted. Interesting. I would not have guessed that. (laughs) 
I love it. So this wraps us up, but um, I know everyone listening is going to be like, okay, how do I work with David? Are you taking anybody else in your private practice these days or are you maxed out? Well, uh, people are, are certainly welcome to uh, uh, text me. Okay. Uh, at the at a number that you have, but I'll give it. Okay, yeah. If you're if you're willing, you share it, man. That's that's on you. I love it. <laughs> um, or I could give out my email. Either one, whatever you want. Uh, my email is simply a d roadhouse at yahoo.com. Okay, great. So if anyone's inquiring, they want their own Buddhist master. <laughs> Psychotherapist David, you can email David and see if he has any slots open. But you are working full time these days, aren't you? You're still I you're am, busy. I'm doing all uh, teletherapy. Yeah, since March of twenty. Awesome. Good for you. And some walking consults for folks who live on the North Shore of Chicago. Yeah, yeah it's true. Yeah, that's great. All right, David. As always, it was wonderful to chat with you. Um, I'm sure I'll be talking to you here in the next couple of weeks. But thanks so much for sharing all your wisdom and joining me on the podcast today. We'll talk yeah. soon. Morgan, let me say that I appreciate your willingness to open up. Always. If I'm good for one thing, it's opening up, man. That's for sure. (laughs) Be well. You too. 